Thank you so much for listening to the official audiobook for Echoes of the Holograph, available now on Amazon Kindle. My name is Elder Basic, author of Echoes of the Holograph. The awesome music that you're listening to right now was doodly performed and written by my friend Brandon Moss for the official soundtrack to Wormhole City. Without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into the acknowledgments, and then we're going to go right into Chapter 1, The Atomic American. Thanks for listening. Acknowledgements. Bits and pieces of this book were written everywhere. Doom Decree was thought of in between film previews at me and my partner Barbara's favorite movie theater. Mountain Heart was inspired at a local bar in Bedford, Texas over drinks and discussions about indie film. Some of it came to me at my desk job. Other parts in the car, barely awake, fighting the morning light. I owe the credit of this book to my mom, who's helped me in ways that she cannot know. Love also goes to my father and my brother for inspiration in Mountain Heart and Discovery, and to my longtime friends, Charles De Vega, who read the first draft of The Atomic American Over Cigarettes and New Beginnings on the patio of his apartment in Euless, and Derek Rogers for just always being there. A massive commendation also goes to Barbara for believing wholeheartedly in my strange worlds and for helping me fall back in love with myself. The Atomic American My skin crackled with electricity when I was born. I still remember the placid, muted smell of the leftover oranges and sandwich crust on the tray next to my mom as she slept peacefully, and the soft, warm texture of the purple-spotted dinosaur sheets my new body was wrapped in. I remember the drab colors of the curtains in the hospital's nursery. Maroon, but faded. I cried louder than the others. Ironically, I never identified as American, but my home was there. The newspapers read, Child who flies is born. That child was me. My name was jo- Is Jonah. I've always felt there was something different about me. During the first few years of my life, it was the ability to absorb Finnegan's wake as a toddler. In elementary school, it was when I learned I could bend the metal bars on the school's playground when no one else was watching. It always made me wonder what the limitations of my power were. What was this body capable of? The immature hands of a child, were they comparable to the man who worked with sweat on his brow? Were they at all similar to a man's worn knees on a plantation? Was I anything? like the crinkled men in Washington. I always believed I was the same as them, though even now it's hard to say if I'm a man at all. At this point in my life, I wonder what is larger in stature, the man or the power behind him. Memories of my youth creep into my head from time to time. These are the first moments of my life. At seven years old, when I formed a fist The dust and sand on the ground would rise and sway around me. When I squeezed harder, the leaves in the trees would break apart and dance. I remember pressing down on the ground with my feet. My mother would fall down and laugh from the sheer seismic pressure. She was always amazed at my strength. The press called me the first superhuman. 
Journalists and religious missionaries would come by my home, only to be shooed away by my Midwestern mother. There was talk of eugenics, the second coming of Christ, medical experiments for the post-New Age. China even tried to replicate my genetic code into a stolen form of artificial intelligence. I grew up to be the world's symbol of strength and the first gifted human, but at home, at home, I was simply Jonah. Seated around the table with a mouthful of Cheerios, I could only be Jonah. Mother tried her best to keep the world's curiosity at bay. From the moment I floated out of her arms in the delivery room, there were people trying to catch a glimpse. That's all people ever did. Just try to catch the sight of something odd. She took the occasional paid interview, of course. She was a single mom, and I don't really know who my father was. These were tiny blips in my memory. My childhood was full of interviews. I would sit there in just some modern and uncomfortable chair with a strange woman asking me what I liked to do. She would lean in, furrowing her brow to convey that she was really prime time quality, clear her throat once or twice, and ask the question of the hour, do you feel normal? Some questions were off limits, but reporters would always try to get in that one good question. Before I could even begin to contemplate the extent of feeling and the definition of normal, Mother would swoop in, hawkish and angry, demanding the recording stop, live or not. She just wanted me to be a normal kid. There was often a flurry of protest, a line about journalism and the indecency of it all, and then, silence. We'd get in the car, take home some greasy burgers, and I'd spend the rest of the evening playing video games with Mother peering in to see if I was exhibiting some kind of trauma. After some time, there was another story to follow, and then the interviews just stopped. A loudmouthed politician succeeded in convincing the world that my powers were a hoax. Smoke and mirrors. Magician's trick. After all, it was the 90s. The image of me floating in the delivery room became mythical. And eventually, not believable. The press lost interest in the superhuman boy and his defiant mother, and the whole thing quieted down. In truth, I was content most of the time, even though I was lonely. After school, I would lay on the straw hammock behind the farmhouse. Sometimes I would float upwards until it was hard to breathe. I later learned to breathe up there. In the sky, I was home. I would rush past clouds, counting them. I would play in the storms above our farm and rocket downwards, coming to a stop right before contact with the earth. At age 10, I could fly fast as a jet. One minute I was staring down the sun and the next, homework. Over time, I learned how to generate lightning with my fists by pressing my fingertips to my palms and vibrato. I didn't know what to do with myself until I discovered comic books. I read about heroes that dwarfed my own powers, godlike entities that filled me with inspiration and company. They were heroes of speed, strength, electricity, and I wanted to be like them. Me, the simple kid in Michigan, with brown hair and dorky glasses that could lift trees, wanted to be a hero. Time always passed too quickly to me, though. Like with anyone else. I was 18 years old, and I was barely an old enough to understand the world as just a kid. The kid in Michigan with dinosaur sheets, yet there I was, alone, in New York City. I was alone everywhere, and the day I said goodbye to my mother still stung. Suddenly, there was this heat on the back of my neck. I could still feel the tingle. I shot into the sky, and everyone on the ground saw me for who I really was, for what I was. The dust from my flight peppering the eyes of those in Times Square that afternoon. They would end up calling it the Great Showing of 2001. 
When the passengers aboard the plane felt the craft come to a stop and they watched the earth shift below, everything changed. When the first plane appeared over the horizon on September 11th, 2001, I raised my hand in defiance, skinned to metal, and prevented the fall of the West as we know it. Nothing can come close to how I felt when I heard the chorus of cries erupting from New York that day, when the camera zoomed in on my face, 30,000 feet above the earth. I was crying, if you could believe it. Then came the story of a century. It was a blur. Even on the ground, blinded by photography and deaf with shouting, I could still hear the confusion in the hull of the plane I was holding. My hand hot with metal. I was overtaken with loose thoughts, pictures in my head of a purple sky, my mother in the kitchen, a piece of plaid cloth on my skin. At only 18 years old, I had been outed to the entire world as a genetic phenomenon and was ranked among scientists and seismologists as a level 10 superpower, the official ninth wonder of the world. I still have the pin for that. The politician who claimed I was a hoax lost his job, but that doesn't make the stain of graffiti on my mom's door go away. Like every 20 year old, I became obsessed with finding myself. Who better than the man present at my birth, the man that took such an interest in me, and who never believed the tabloids claiming my powers were a hoax. We became fast friends. Dr. Parage would visit my mother at the new home I constructed for her in Maine, and they would share stories of me as a child over wine and fine French bread. Muhammad Paraj taught me about the world. He filled my brain with stories of his mother and father and how he missed them dearly. He advised I never forget the face of my mother. He was the first to see me for who I was. He delivered me and was the first onlooker of my powers, aside from that babbling nurse who drew the local news attention. As an adult, I confided in him and told him of my fears of time. On my 21st birthday, we drank together. He was amazed that alcohol did nothing to me. Sometimes I wish I could get drunk. Shortly after seeing me float in the middle of my delivery room, upside down and without a sense of direction, he transitioned from delivering children to academic writing. He wrote a successful paper on my powers and even managed to coin the term, the polymath phenomenon. He even won a Humboldt Prize for his paper. I read it back to front, even though it was like reading a sports card on myself. I could still feel the heat of his hand on my back as we laughed over brandy and citrus. I missed him, seeing him less and less after the birth of his daughter, and then not seeing him at all after the birth of his second. In my late 20s, with years of fighting crime behind me, I learned of a few of humanity's quirks. Crime and gun violence was at 2% of what it was before the great showing, depending on the month. Regular people were the most curious to me, how they'd always wish the weather was warmer or colder, conveniently contrary to whether it was hot or freezing outside. They all seemed to want to own things, and not one of them was exempt from that. In a way, they all wanted to own me. In my 30s, I didn't even feel like I owned myself. Some days, I felt like I was nothing more than a totem. People would be very cruel, manipulative, and short-sighted. But there was good there, too. I found goodness in people through music. I loved What Do You Got by the famous Bon Jovi. Something about the way he sang gave me hope and release. The Major League Baseball Commission would play that song at ball games when they knew I would be attending, knowing it was my favorite. My brain absorbed and retained information at a much faster rate than the average person's. The United States government ended up building me a home in Washington, D.C. 
It would stand as a public beacon, but to me, it was a cold tribute. Home was a farm in Michigan, and always would be. I had just under 760,000 books, and every word had found a home in my brain. It seemed infinite. I could run my finger horizontally across a bookshelf, finger touching every page and end up reading that many books that day. I was a constant vacuum of Earth's knowledge. I relished in it. I needed a daily supply of new books and magazines to read. I always made sure to thank the local city book suppliers the United States government assigned me and the dock workers who loaded them into my library every morning. Sometimes in the quiet evening when I was alone, my hands would reach for a book, a special one, Albert Camus, The Outsider. I would read it like a regular man would, slowly. It was the only thing to keep the loneliness at bay. Some people were cat people and dog people, and they take great pride in telling you so. I am both. I buckled and took in a stray who scratched at my door every morning at sunrise. The cat, a tabby mix named Angelica, would lean against my leg, purring. Soon after, I buckled and took in a stray who scratched at my door every morning at sunrise. The pup was a lively Yorkshire Terrier. His name is Jack. It was strange to some people to see me walking Jack around Central Park, but he never barked when people came up to me for pictures. I discovered a love for the piano, and then later learned to love yoga. Jack would join me in the mornings in Central Park, contorting my body while he sniffed the grass. I loved exercise. When my mind would drift in the warm afternoons of my jog with Jack, I find myself wondering if people thought Jack was ever in any danger being walked by a man that could kiss the sun unharmed. The posters and comics would always show me with one knee arched at an angle upwards, like in their comic books. I still read them. The sun draped me on the covers, and my red and blue cape was always floating in the wind. There were action figures, there were even some poorly developed video games in my honor. In Somalia, they called me Aouda, which roughly translated to the Power Man. In France, they donned me Le Fort and painted the Eiffel Tower in my colors. It stood as a red and blue monument in Europe, a symbol of peace. In America, I came to be known simply as the Atomic American. Whenever I was invited to the drab halls of the United Nations or gray government office somewhere in Virginia, they'd greet me with that moniker while patting me on the back, laughing with their apathy for creativity. I still never identified as an American. World leaders argued over me, and much to my chagrin, I was eventually touted as a national superweapon exclusively to the United States of America. Property. After a long conversation with the then-current President of the United States, I decided that the best way to combat this was to build a home for myself in all of the 195 countries of the world. I needed to send a message that I belonged to humanity, not just one specific country. I did my best to visit every one of my homes each year, even though I constantly found myself lacking the time. A mass of people awaited me every time, phones at the ready. The feeling of being on the outside stuck with me, though. One morning, I flew to Florida and a family came into my view. Lean and sun-kissed, you could hear their laughter from far away. A man and his little girl were laughing, his wife sunbathing in the sand. It felt safe and like home. The family jumped into the ocean together, calling back to one another. 
I watched the waves swell until the sky was covered in gray, and then thunder followed. My brain lit up in wonder, and I wondered if I had missed mankind's simplest of joys. I was drawn to that Florida beach that day, and it wasn't until much later that I knew why. This was part of humanity worth saving, or so I had thought. With more and more cracks on my face, I would often find myself staring for hours in the mirror. I would touch my lips, my eyes, and my cheeks softly, floating rhythmically above the shag carpet where Jack would sleep. It was not driven by vanity, rather this underwhelming curiosity. I knew some things to be undeniably true. My face was human, not too handsome, not too soft, but firm and nicely lined. Women flocked to me, but I never had the time to reciprocate that interest, nor did I ever want to. Like any man, I got hungry. I got thirsty. Sometimes I would wake up with the urge to wash my hair. Tiredness was foreign. Rather, it seemed to take me significantly longer to reach the point of exhaustion. Months of flight could pass before the slightest hint of fatigue hit my body. I was more powerful than anything and anyone in my time, but I couldn't fight my worst enemy. Time itself. There was never a romantic love for me. Not an equal, anyway, and not for the reason you might think. I love my mother, as most men do. My second love was for the universe and time, the syncopated heartbeat of mankind. It's hard to explain in such a limited language. If Earth's drum was my music, the whistling of my mom's kettle in the kitchen was a crescendo. Even with my infinite power, I grew older, albeit slower. I saw mother pass away. 43 was a difficult one. I didn't fly at all that year. I don't even think I used my powers at all. A few years later, my 50th birthday slowly crept into view. That year, I went to Dr. Paraj's funeral, shook his wife's hand, and hugged his grown daughters, Aishi and Sanvi. Even at my old mentor's funeral, I stole the spotlight. That was a strange anger to harbor. And now, it is my time. Alone. I had the power to push vehicles with a simple blink of my eyes, but I was never able to silence the creeping theme of time. I could protect humanity, but only temporarily. I learned the feeling of loss and its lonely touch. In the end, I was still a man. I started to feel the cold touch coming for me. I threw out my back for the first time, holding up a collapsing building in Somalia. During my recovery, I had a great dream, though. I dreamt of time's fabric, and it glowed red and blue, like me. It weaved around me and my mother as we stood on black granite, a great machine in the background. It flowed around the naked bodies of people I've never met, a tall warrior in armor, two lost brothers, and a veiled pair of machines. I could not see their faces. In this dream, my hands were caked in red and blue lightning. My eyes was hot with fury, and I was crying. I had lost something, or someone, and in my dream I saw pillars of white caked with blood. Oh, how I cried when I woke. On a hot summer afternoon, I visited the old farm. I walked through the creaking home, opening old wooden cupboards to reveal half-eaten boxes of Cheerios, and stepped foot in my childhood bedroom, crowding my brain with nostalgia. I sat on the tattered couch where my mom and I would watch sitcoms, after my great dream, my powers of energy manipulation ballooned and I discovered I had the ability to create time-based energy. 
energy that could grant peace on earth long after my passing by allowing me to cloak the earth from disasters, famines, and war even after my death. I had hoped that this red and blue energy would achieve sentience and in my place would watch over humanity. That hot summer afternoon I took a train. I walked on the soft grass of the farm's backyard and for the first time since my mother passed, took flight. Within seconds I found myself sharing breathing room with the moon. My hands crackled with lightning and gold light filled the cracks of my face. I put my arms out in front of me. The lightning from my arms squeezed and snaked to the earth, growing in size and eventually covering the entire planet. I set foot on the moon, devoid of any country's flag, and released a harmless cloud of purple, blue, and red light from my hands across every continent. Humanity called it the Day of the Holograph. I love that name, and I took to it myself. I saw the holograph's energy flow through remnants of time, filling the Earth's oceans and core with energy that affected dimensions and alternate worlds. It was a visual marvel that drew the attention of different species across space. Over time, alien ambassadors from different worlds would call out to me. Their voices warbled, dark and foreign. Some whispered while some shouted. I had conversations on Earth's moon with beings of light, creatures of darkness, and even terrestrials that resembled the ones on planet Earth. I would hold palavers with ancient beings from distant galaxies who felt the heat of the holograph's energy that now caked the Earth. Some ancient evils made themselves known to me and after a showcase of my power on the moon were prohibited from entering Earth's atmosphere. The energy of my holograph crackled around my body and would serve as a warning to all colossal beings in space that threatened my planet's safety. One such being warned me of the consequences of even creating the holograph, that the energy itself would attract a being known as the Broad Demon. But showcasing my naive humanity, its forbidding warning fell on deaf ears. Especially at the height of my wisdom and power, I believed I could protect the Earth forever, but I was wrong. Going home after speaking with cosmic entities was not entirely lonely. After all, I did have my pets. In the next few years, news reports of a woman in Florida who could conjure lightning started popping up on my television. I met her near the end of my life and we became fast friends. When we would test the limits of each other's power in my private enclosure, the titanium dome we built together would always shatter and crack, no matter how many times I fixed it. I took up an apprentice. She was my confidant, the sole heir I imparted my teachings to. Her name was Amanda, and she could do everything I could do, and more. Amanda. I am the successor of the holograph. Thanks to Jonah's holograph energy, I can fly, move cars with a wave of my hand, kick through a concrete wall with ease, and stare into the sun for hours without consequence. It wasn't until later in my adult life, when my father died, that I discovered my powers. I remember the singing of the birds in my backyard when the red and blue light of the holograph filled the sky. I was stricken with grief. In that emotional climax of sorrow and pain, I clenched my fists together and discovered lightning. The same lightning would surge and dance around my fingers, arms, hair, until the day I died. My skin and the air around me detonated in tiny displays of fire and light. The smell of my burnt clothes filled the air. The release of a dormant power that had been planted since birth awakened on the day of the holograph. 
I bellowed as I found myself floating a few feet from the earth, singed flesh and the smell that came with it. Jonah found me soon after and brought me under his wing. We spent the next year discovering who we were, trying to find our place in the universe. The very same Jonah who saved the world and stopped a plane from crashing into the Twin Towers. The man who prevented the fall of a nation. Today was the day that a man who propelled humanity into a time of peace died. He drew his final breath with me, Jack, and Angelica at his side. News choppers and a mass of candlelight vigils just outside the aging Michigan farmhouse. Angelica purred softly while Jack whined at him. He spent his final day on his tattered old couch. The only sound in the room emanated from his old CRT television. Over oven-toasted French bread, he told me stories of his youth, how much he loved his mother and Dr. Parage, and how he couldn't wait to see them again. He recounted his great dream and lamented at his losing battle against time itself. Moments before he passed, and seconds before I would feel a surge of impossible responsibility, he assured me and his pets he was going to a better place. He told us to call on him if we ever needed him again, as the color in his face finally faded, and as my tears soaked the purple dinosaur sheets covering him. Jonah, the Atomic American, 1985 through 2069. Background music by El Scavone, reading by me, book written by me, introductory song, and ending theme by Brandon Moss. Echoes of the Holograph, it's available for purchase on Amazon. You can either get the paperback or the Kindle version, whichever makes the most sense for you. Take care, guys. Thank you.